This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures. This week, one of my favorite conversations with Gad Berdugo, CTV's Executive in Residence and the former Chief Business Officer of Editas. He'll be talking with our own Offer Weinberger about why he is so excited for the potential for precision medicine, gene editing, and advanced diagnostics for improved increment health, about the waves of new therapeutics that may come in the years ahead for thousands of genetic diseases, and about the business model opportunities and challenges behind these new innovations. Okie doke. So we'll get started, and we'll get started... Um, not least because there are about a dozen different topics that would lend themselves to just a full-blown dedicated discussion with God. So we are have to be picky and, you know, choose one or two topics. Um, but there's a whole lot of knowledge and experience that we would love to, you know, have a discussion with you about. So we're indeed fortunate to have God Berdugo as one of our, as our guest today, and as one of our XIRs, Executives in Residence at CTV this year. God is very accomplished from spending over 30 years in biotech as and pharma, as Connolly had mentioned, including, and this is just, you know, several highlights, Director of Global BD at Baxter, Director and Head Global Life Sciences Equity Investment Research at Lazard, which is one of the world's leading asset management firms, co-founder and CEO of a cancer vaccine company, Epivax Therapeutics, and Chief Business Officer of Editas Medicines, which is probably known uh, to to almost everyone um, in this group, a leading gene editing company utilizing CRISPR to develop new medicines for serious diseases, and has certainly been in the news in the context of uh, CRISPR and CRISPR as an exciting new platform technology in, in the last several years. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, God, for your feedback, your advice for our teams and for us in the tech transfer office at CTV, which is always, always extremely valued and appreciated. So as I said, there's so much that would be interesting to talk about, but let's start with CRISPR. So because we have to start somewhere. So in a five-second introduction to CRISPR, CRISPR gene editing is one of those scientific breakthroughs that come along just, you know, once every few years that have the potential to transform the landscape of science, medicine, and the associated businesses and industries associated with the technology. So we would be very interested in hearing your perspective on the prospects for gene editing technologies, the competitive landscape, the challenges on the path to successful commercialization, not least because we have a number of exciting gene editing and CRISPR-related technologies in Colombia's portfolio. So that's a lot to talk about in just a few minutes, but some highlights. Uh, with pleasure. Thank you, Ofra, for your intro, Connolly. Thank you. Thank you for having me on this uh, on this panel today. I'm very excited to be part of the CTV uh, team. Uh, f- for sure, for me, an 
uh, an extraordinary learning experience. And this is what I've been trying to do for my entire career, um, giving and learning. Um, and 30 years is a lot. In fact, I started in biotech 40, 40 years ago as a biochemist at the Imperial College of Science in London. It was the first year that my class was offering a major in biotechnology. Uh, so was, that was in 1982. So I was fortunate to have ex to experience, you know, firsthand all these major uh, revolutions in biotech, uh, starting from the 80s, the recombinant DNA therapeutic proteins, monoclonal antibodies, uh, gene therapy, cell therapy, and now with gene editing. And I really I was fortunate to surf this uh, several waves in biotech uh, in the last four decades. Started as a scientist. I also did a biochemical engineering master's at University College London. Did a year and a half in research in genetic engineering in Israel. And that's when I realized that uh, being a bench scientist was not really for me. I was doing uh, uh, trying to do polymerase chain reaction when the uh, uh, instruments were not automated yet. So that was uh, very uh, painful. Um, uh, but it was uh, when we were uh, still making our own enzymes. Huh? Exactly, and uh, and, and uh, you know the thermal cyclers were not automated, so it was a uh, was very tedious, and I just didn't have the patience. So I moved to the business side of biotech very early on in my career, um, and um, working you know large pharma first at Abbott Labs and then the Baxter Healthcare back back in the days where Baxter was involved in cell therapy um, in 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 the nineties. Uh, spent uh, over 10 years in biopharma and then pivoted my career in, in an investment bank uh, at Lazard and spent the last next 15 years in, in the financial service industry covering biotech and then moved back uh, in entre an entrepreneurial position, C-level position in early stage biotech uh, in various cap capacities as a CEO, as a CFO also uh, for NASDAQ LC company and um, uh, as a CBO you mentioned for Editas. So um, a diverse background, and I was really uh, following my, uh, uh, my passion. So when I started my career in biotech, I was six foot four. Now I'm five nine, just to give you an idea of what happened. <laughs> God, it would uh, be great to hear from you, you know, your perspective, your advice to, to folks in this group who are interested in career paths uh, that are you know, now more diverse than ever before for PhDs in the life sciences. That's another topic that would Absolutely. be... Anybody, by the way, will have follow-up questions. I'm going to be speaking fast here. There's a lot, lot to cover. Anybody wants to, you know, contact me directly, feel free to contact me. Anyway, back to the gene editing. I was really fortunate to be with Editas in an extraordinary time. I was the chief business officer responsible for corporate strategy, BD, corporate development, M&A, and um, uh, fascinating time. And um, it's a we're living a true revolution, if not probably the most important revolution in, 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 in medicine. We're able to cut and paste DNA. We're able to rewrite the genetic code of life. So that's, that's extraordinary. The, this new era of synthetic biology is going to take us in so many places. So, but most importantly, we can develop, potentially develop, one and done therapies. So that's never been done for critical for critical uh, in in critical uh, disease or life threatening disease. One and done, one shot, and you cure the disease. That's that's an extraordinary achievement. 
This year will be the first year where we will be seeing the first gene-edited product approved by the FDA. This is the product by Vert, uh, uh, developed by CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex for the treatment of sickle cell disease, sickle cell anemia, sickle cell disease. With This is an ex vivo um, application of gene editing using CRISPR. The ability to um, modify, rectify a mutation in a, in a hematopoietic stem cell ex vivo. So the cells are extracted from the patient, genetically mani manipulated with CRISPR, reinfused back into the patient with the potential to recreate um, uh, a, a hematopoiesis, which is, uh, which is uh, being corrected from the disease. Um, clinical trials have, have been successful. Patients, patients so far are cured. So, so this is, is a uh, therapy targeting a disease or is it patient specific? So this is this is um, well, this is targeting the patients who have a genetic deficiency. Right? This is a genetic disease, um, uh, which is uh, there are thousands of patients here in the U.S. It's more prevalent outside of the U.S. Um, and so it's a genetic deficiency, and they're like sickle cell disease. There are seven thousand. Genet other genetic deficiencies that can be addressed by a CRISPR uh, gene editing technology. So, uh, so this is so this is an ex vivo application of gene editing. There are also applications of gene editing that are in vivo, where we can directly in vivo um, modify the genome, rectify mutation, uh, and restore the functional uh, uh, gene. Um, and cure a disease. So one application, which is still in clinical uh, development by the company called uh, Intelia, is, a, um, is the ability to uh, genetically modify a gene in a, uh, in a disease called ATTR, which is a liver genetic disease. And here, uh, um, the um, CRISPR is delivered in vivo via a non-viral um, delivery mechanism, which is using mRNA. So mRNA is coding for the genetic material together with the guide RNA is included in a lipid nanoparticle. The lipid nanoparticle is injected systemically, travels to the liver. The LNP is incorporated into the liver cells for endocytosis. The genetic material is in introduced intracellularly. Uh, the, CRISPR is, uh, the CRISPR is expressed the mRNA, the CRISPR protein, ribonucleoprotein is, is expressed internally, scans the chromosomes, finds a mutation, cuts and, re and, and restore and cuts and uh, replace the, the mutated uh, gene or mutated sequence and restore the functional protein, which in turn cures the disease. So uh, this is a true revolution. Um, and and the reason why I'm saying it's not only limited to 7,000 genetic deficiencies, but it's also could also be used in non-genetic deficiencies in um, uh, affecting uh, medical conditions like, like diabetes, for example, or pain management um, in certain instances. So, and, and so the, the, the potential is so huge, it's even, it's even difficult to comprehend how far this technology will take us. So, um, another company, Verve, is, for example, targeting using an in vivo approach 
a, a genetic deficiency of hypercholesterolemia, and which is affected affecting hundreds of thousands of patients. Not so, 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 so that's even a broader application of of this uh, of this technology. So, so these are the potentials. Uh, by the way, the sickle cell disease that I mentioned uh, is an ex vivo approach. The next generation that is being developed by several companies is to go after the same mutation using an in vivo approach. Because the challenges with these, uh, and I'm going to address the challenges of these technologies in, in a minute, but one of the key challenges is, uh, especially when you're doing autologous, uh, when you're using an autologous process, is, is the complexity, the cost of these type of therapies and the ac access, how do you act, how do you, how do you deliver this therapy in you know countries like like Africa, for example, or Asia, certain areas in Asia where uh, there's a uh, the prevalence of sickle cell is very high. But how do you how do you deliver this this technology using an autologous platform? So um, one way to 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 address it is to again through go for an in vivo approach uh, of modifying using an, an mRNA uh, in a lipid nanoparticle, for example, and correct correcting the genetic uh, uh, um, deficiency of sickle cell disease in an in vivo fashion. So that could be the next generation there. So these are, these are the, uh, the opportunities for these, uh, this new, uh, uh, this really true revolution. Uh, and, uh, but there are challenges. If I could just interject with a question. So you've just described um, to us the transformative potential of the technology and that it's a true correction of, of um, a condition or a, or a genetic defect or a mutation. So it's not a therapy, it's a correction of the underlying cause of disease. And you've touched on just how many different groups and companies there are who are pursuing the utilization of CRISPR for the development of therapies. How does one develop a business model in such a cluttered landscape? Yeah, uh, okay, so it's a great question. So I, in fact, I'm, I was gonna address that by, the, by talking about the challenges. So the current processes uh, that are being adopted are extremely complex, especially from the biomanufacturing processes. Uh, the number of technologies involved are multiple. Um, so it's really complex to integrate all these technologies in the process. So if we can develop a process that is simpler, find ways to simplify the process, that's already something that will be very, very useful, uh, to, from a, from a, from a, especially from a cost standpoint and the complexity standpoint. The second challenge is, is with these uh, uh, novel technologies, the risk of off-target, off-target gene editing. The risk that the CRISPR, uh, well, in, uh, instead of or in addition of correcting the intended mutation, starts cutting and pasting pieces of DNA somewhere else in the in a human genome. Uh, that would that could trigger is a major side effect. So so that's. Uh, something that we have not seen yet in the clinic, uh, but theoretically could happen. So there are num a number of, of teams, including at Columbia, by the way, uh, um, Columbia University, trying to develop 
novel ways to minimize this type of, of target effects at the, on the gene editing system. So that's that's certainly an area of... I imagine of, that's a big you know, concern for the FDA in reviewing new therapeutics. Absolutely. Another, another challenge is on the delivery, um, to minimize off-target effect, you can work on the nucleus, on the engineering system, but also you can work on the delivery side. So the, currently, these lipid nanoparticles, they are targeted to go to the liver. And the liver is a, is a fairly easy organ. It's low-hanging low fruit, so to speak, because the LNPs anyway tend to travel to the liver anyway. Uh, because they're cleared in the liver. Most of them are cleared in the liver anyway. So uh, the challenge here is to uh, target these uh, these uh, LNPs or nanoparticles, overparticles, the liver systems in a very uh, precise way to non-liver, in a cell-specific manner. That whole area is, is super interesting. There are a lot of innovation there to make sure that you are taking the genetic material and, and deliver it to the to the exact cell that you 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 want. So that that is super important. The targeting, the delivery aspect of these. Um, another challenge here is there's so much so much activity in the in the especially in the, around the mRNA space after the COVID vaccine success that there's a major bottleneck in terms of manufacturing mRNA, especially GMP mRNA or LNPs. Uh, that you simply, if you try to do a, want to do a clinical trial, you are challenged by uh, the cost and the timelines. It will take you a year and a half, two years to get access and millions of dollars to get access to GMP grade mRNA LNP. Okay. So that's, so that's a challenge where innovation can help to try to find better ways, cheaper ways to produce uh, these genetic materials for for therapeutic use. So That's really therapy. interesting because manufacturing is also the bottleneck for cell therapies. Absolutely, same uh, same same concerns for cell therapy. Absolutely, especially autologous cell therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so and obviously costs, right? If we can find ways to have these uh, therapeutic these therapies as cheap as possible. They're, they're obvious. They're obvious. So, so, so I, I listed here a few challenges that, uh, if being addressed by innovating companies, they, they are, they are, will, will generate some business, uh, you know, some business opportunity startup. Anyway, so, 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 um, I, I hope that I convey to you uh, uh, my my uh, my sense of excitement here. It's really once in a generation type of. Uh, uh, type of area that, that I, again, I was fortunate to to be part of. So, how are the companies um, approaching the potential for revenue generation if the focus of the application of the technology is on rare disease or you know extremely rare diseases? Uh, yes. Great question. So, so far, uh, and so here I'm going to pull examples from the gene therapy world. Okay. So gene therapy, first think of it as like the first gen that's gene therapy. Now we're able to be even more precise than gene therapy, which actually find the exact mutation and correct it. Right. So gene therapy is more like the first gen. Okay. So there are several gene therapy products for genetic diseases or rare diseases that have been approved 
and commercialized. So we have some some benchmark already to understand the the economics, the pharmacoeconomics of these novel agents, okay, in the market. So 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 far the system has was able to absorb very high pricing. And these therapies that are just entering the market are being priced at a, over a million or even two million dollars. And they are being reimbursed. Because there, because the number of patients that are benefiting is still small. So overall, uh, the system can can digest it. Obviously, the system cannot digest it if 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 these therapies become more and more you know uh, used. Obviously, there's so uh, so here too, right? So 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 far we say that um, and the, and how were they able to uh, just to explain to you how they were able to get away with such a big price, right? So they went to the um, to the uh, to the insurance companies, and they told them, well, um, if if the patient is on uh, the current standard of care is protein replacement, so recombinant protein. Let's say let's take hemophilia, right? Gene therapy for hemophilia was just approved a few months ago for the first ones ever. So and the price tag is like a million and a half to two million. So how how can well it cost it would cost a patient today. 200,000, 150 to $200,000, $250,000 per year for recombinant factor eight. So if you can show, you forget payer, that. Yeah. You, you can show the payer that you're going to uh, save, you know, five, six, seven, ten years. By the way, we don't know, we don't know how long, how durable these gene therapies will be. Uh, Right. That's also a very right. important question that everybody's watching. How right. long will the patients actually How continue to benefit the gene therapy? Five years, six years, seven? We don't know. Um, but they, based on, uh, it's on a case by case, but whatever was uh, uh, negotiated, right? So they were able to actually justify a million, two million dollars upfront, upfront cost by saying we, we're going to save you five, six, seven years of $200,000 a year. So that's how they how they able to do it, um, and that's that's basically the same concept that is being used for all these expensive, uh, you know, uh, biotherapies. Well, that's really reassuring. I mean, we here we're a university tech transfer office, so we're really standing at the junction between the creation of knowledge and then the practical application, which requires consideration of all these questions about, you know, what what is the the um, most feasible and realistic business model in order to partner with all the various different stakeholders and parties that are needed in order to develop a therapeutic and really bring it out to the market. Uh, having said that, just one note of caution, it's, it's the system is that the, we're as a country in the US, we're spending over well over 20% of our GDP in healthcare. And that's not sustainable. So uh, there's pressure ongoing pressure on the cost of drugs. Uh, and you know, there's a political debate on this. But I just want to remind the audience that the cost of drug is only 10% of the entire healthcare cost. That's not really the cost of drug is not responsible for this explosion of cost at that place, only a fraction. Anyway, but An important um, point to remember. But, but it's very important to remind to remind ourselves that this we have to find biotherapeutics that are as cheap as as cost efficient to manufacture as possible. 
Yeah. So, so God, just using this as a segue to just another topic that um, we'd love to touch on just very briefly is just as gene editing enables us to create very specific solutions and therapies for serious diseases, the field of oncology and cancer therapeutics has also evolved toward more precisely targeted therapies. So this is very exciting, but what does it mean in terms of the evolution of biotech and pharma and the commercialization of, you know, the innovative science out of the university labs? Is pharma like leaving or or, or turning away from the blockbuster model that yeah, this, this directed yeah. its business? Yeah. yeah, so the simple answer to your question is yes, the, the pharma is de facto following science and science is there's there's a there's a now an acknowledgement that cancer is a is a disease of the genome it's a, it's really a, a genetic disease it's that the genetic component of cancer is 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 extraordinary important and now we have tools especially next generation sequencing to cheaply being able to identify these mutations and more and more so so and and we also now have drugs that we can be precisely tailored around that genetic signature um and so yes it will segment the market it'll set from a from a pharma standpoint but the response rate uh, it will be much higher the safety will be much higher and the payers are willing to pay premium for these type of therapies so so um and the profit margin is is also very high because then you don't need armies of sales reps to push the therapy it will be a more like a pool marketing therapy because if you have that genetic mutation then the likelihood that you're going to respond for that drug is 95% or 99%. So, so the, the model is, is completely reversed on its head and uh, it's the way to go. That's the future. Perci you know, personalized therapy, targeted for precision oncology is, is absolutely the way to, way to go, especially in cancer and in other therapeutics as well, in other areas. But, but I wanted to say in cancer, very importantly, uh, is the ability with similar technologies, by the way, predictive um, technology um, diagnostics, early diagnostics, to be able to diagnose cancer early. Because if you diagnose cancer early, your chances of survival are increased by several order of magnitudes. It's so much hard, harder to treat a cancer when it's reached the metastatic uh, phase, regardless what what approach you're using. So. Um, now we have uh, we have we have new technologies, especially using next generation sequencing and predictive algorithm and AI to uh, predict cancer early in blood, um, and and that that whole area is also going to explode. And 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 I will also have now we have treatments that that are useful when used early in the treat in the uh, in the treatment algorithm. So now we can treat earlier, especially with checkpoint inhibitors, for example, they can be used earlier in the treatment. So so it's so it's useful to diagnose early because you can treat earlier and then and then and the mortality and you're gonna see the mortality rate coming down. Uh, I certainly hope so. So many things come to mind listening to you. One is just recently we launched a new Columbia startup and it is called TFC, the first cell. It is based on, on technology and IP out of Azra Raza's lab here at Columbia. It's funded by Arch right out of the gate. And it is a, its whole premise is exactly what you just described. 
identifying that first cell before the whole cascade of, you know, cancer related next steps are triggered. So let's, let's hope that they're successful and as quickly as possible and the path to a successful therapeutic is short. Um, But the other thing that comes to mind is diagnostics over the last half dozen years or so have kind of fallen out of favor as an area for uh, filing patents and, you know, considering what the license and commercial opportunities are. It sounds like you're anticipating an upswing in the value of diagnostics or prognostic diagnostics in the marketplace. Uh, Am I reading you right? Yeah, yeah, um, yes. It's still a challenging space because you still need to go through FDA approval and show each of these diagnostic tests have to go through very rigorous, um, uh, almost almost looking like clinical trials in order to be approved. So you still have a a significant investment. but the, here, the explosion of innovation is really linked to uh, genetic next generation sequencing and now AI. So combining much machine learning with uh, uh, NGS. Uh, uh, and, and so now you can, every, every cancer patient will have its uh, whole tumor normal exome sequenced. So the, the so-called mutanome, uh, the full genome analysis of the normal cell and full exome analysis of, of the, the cells, if you can find them in the biopsy, or if you can find even better, if you can find them in circulating tumor cells or cell-free DNA. Um, and, and with that information, then we'll be able to match the mutanome with existing targeted therapies or targeted target, uh, therapies that are being developed in clinical trials somewhere. And, um, uh, and that's, that effort is just getting started. So the company that is leading the pack here is, is Grail, um, uh, and they're a spin-out of, um, original spin-out of Illumina, and uh, there are other companies that are heavily investing in the space. So it's very hot. Yeah. Wow, the evolution of genome sequencing, where it had started off as a tremendously expensive and lengthy undertaking, that was just beyond the reach of anybody other than you know the largest institutions and and companies right. and down to now yeah. you know just kind yeah. of wide access is extraordinary yeah now i think it's you it's can do it on the 200 dollars genome 200 dollars you know uh, and it keep, keeps coming down the cost keeps coming down so it's and that's uh, well Wow. God, you've been a, an active and very, very valuable member of our tech transfer ecosystem here at Columbia. So it would be a, a terrible omission on our part to not ask you what your predictions are and what your advice would be for us as we're considering how, how to structure and how to approach and how to strategize with and for our startup teams and our emerging, you know, startups over the next 12 to 18 months, I mean, in these changing market conditions, what do you think? (laughs) How about we discuss this over a beer somewhere? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a vast subject. I don't even know where to start. Um, the, the good news is, the good news is, uh, you know, we obviously all, when we're involved in early, uh, early stage research, we're all uh, absolutely tied to the financing environment. The good news is that I think we really hit the bottom this past quarter, the market, and now we started a slow recovery process. So I, I'm, I'm convinced about that. It's going to take some time. Uh, this year is still a year where there's a lot of restructuring with early stage biotech companies that are struggling to get finance, uh, consolidation, mergers, uh, acquisitions. Uh, it's, 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 it's a challenging environment to get. Uh, the reason is because there's, there's an unprecedented disconnect between the supply of capital and the demand of capital for early stage research. That, that disconnect is, is creating a buyer's market with tremendous pressure. So that, I think we hit the bottom, it's gonna get better but it's uh, it's 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 tough out there, and um, and so. Uh, but but I'm I'm super optimistic because of, at the same time we have an explosion of innovation, including at Columbia. I was fortunate to see what what the type of research is going on, and there's an explosion of, of innovation. Uh, I think the MIT coined the, cur- the 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 word the great convergence, where you see this multidisciplinary convergence between uh, genomics. Uh, chemistry, um, molecular biology, uh, inf- uh, IT, microfluidics, robotics, and now AI. Now AI is, is on top of it. You have regenerative AI is coming up. So, so uh, overall, I'm super optimistic, but we'll have to be very strategic about it. We have to really kind of think strategically of, of what are the big trends um, and and. Uh, uh, because me too's me too's are have no chance me too's have no, no. now incremental innovation yes disruptive innovation but and so we really have to think hard about how, what are these thematics uh and then uh, uh, try to you know build uh, um some some winners there uh in the in this that's fascinating because very often we're challenged with um, trying to develop a strategy and um, kind of be practical and reasonable at the same time for technologies and scientific developments that we're convinced are ahead of their time. Um, so trying to anticipate the future, but at the same time, the future it seems to be like hitting us in the face faster and faster and we're moving faster yeah. and faster than ever yeah. before. It is yeah. so ahead of its time is not yeah. necessarily out of reach anymore. Now, here, here's, a, here's one huge challenge, right? So there's tremendous opportunity. One huge challenge that didn't exist before is now we, we are on the clock to generate uh, the first human proof of concept. So if you don't get to a human proof of concept very quickly, then investors will move to the next, your ne- the next gen, which is right behind your neck, behind your back, uh, a competitor working on the next generation technology. So we're, and it used to be that we had more time to get to that first of human. There was less competition, less, now there's more, much more innovation, but much more competition. And so you really need to execute quickly, as quickly as possible to get to the first in-man proof of concept that will allow you to actually to de-risk significantly your asset and then move to the next phase. But if, you, if you're delayed, uh, the risk of failure is 
is it much higher than before. That's the challenge that we have now. That's another area that we should like take some dedicated time to sit down and kind of like dig into more deeply with you, God, when we have a chance, because that's not typically not uh, the direction that academic labs have taken. They're, they're pursuing the knowledge, you know, that discovery and uh, perhaps animal model validation and confirmation to confirm the hypothesis and human proof of concept has typically not uh, been where academic labs have kind of invested their time, effort, and resources. So that's really interesting perspective. 